From the studios of KPCW in Park City, this is Cool Science Radio. It's science and technology that's accessible and entertaining, and if we can understand it, so will you. I'm Lynn Ware Peak. And I'm Katie Mullally. First, this morning, we speak with Kareem Ali, <clears throat> who is the CEO of a company called Nose. It's a medical technology company that identifies, captures, and interprets odors released from our breath and skin to detect things like disease. Then Reuters journalist Ernest Schneider has written extensively about the green energy transition especially the min minerals used for it, and joins to discuss his new book, The War Below, Lithium, Copper, and the Global, the Global Battle to Power Our Lives. These guests, when we return, you're listening to Cool Science Radio here on KPCW. Park City will be back after these words from our underwriters. Welcome back to Cool Science Radio. I'm Lynn Ware Peak, And I'm Katie Mullally. As far back as 800 BC, physicians used odors as a diagnostic indicator to assess a patient's health. As it turns out, they were onto something. We now know the human body is constantly releasing odor biomarkers from our breath and skin, which act as a continuous stream of health signals. Now, this approach to identifying, capturing, and interpreting odors is referred to as digital odor perception. And joining us now to tell us more about how new technology to detect, detect disease is evolving an age-old practice. Kareem Ali is the CEO of Nose, a Canadian AI startup that has developed the world's leading odor perception technology. Kareem, welcome to Cool Science Radio. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here with, with you and Katie. Well, thank you. We're glad you could be here. How interesting is this? And I just want to kick it off by saying when I first started reading about what your company is doing, it took me back to when one of my kids was very young and I took him to the doctor and the doctor said, you know, he just smells streppy. And <laughs> I was so fascinated by that. And it's a thing, right? It, it very much is. It very much is. And, um, you know, as you mentioned, rightly so, back in the day, odor was a main diagnostics tool. We were able to smell diabetes. We were able to smell infection. Physicians used to use that all the time, but it kind of faded away into the background over time in favor of easier tests, stand, more standardized tests, uh, blood sampling, urine sampling, sputum sampling. But we believe it's on the cusp of, of a resurgence and um, we're doing our part to bring it back because um, like you, we believe they were onto something. Um, smell is incredibly powerful. In fact, many people don't know, smell is the fundamental sense. It's the first and the oldest of the senses. And you can think about how powerful it is. It, it evokes memories. You know, you smell something that you ate as a child. It brings back those memories flooding to your mind. Historically, we used it in the animal kingdom, humans included, to find food, to avoid predators. Even uh, it drove socialization, finding uh, partners and mates, so it's an incredibly powerful sense, but I think it's just become a little subordinated in the interest of you know more sophisticated technologies that have evolved over time. But now is its moment. We're very much believers in that. And you know, maybe I can tell you a little bit about the story of Nose, because a lot of people have never heard about Nose and are surprised to learn that we're actually a nine-year-old startup. So that might be a little bit of an oxymoron, but that's, that's how we, we characterize ourselves. And uh, our story goes back to about 2013 where we started with a vision and we we started with just this intellectual curiosity about why have we been able to digitize vision through camera and we've been able to digitize hearing through the microphone but we've never been able to digitize smell it's not for lack of trying it's it's pretty obvious to the average person say okay you have five senses you've digitized some why is this one the one that hasn't been you know tackled yet and then we realized that many smart people Many well-funded companies attempted to do that, and they failed. And they failed for a variety of reasons. But for us, what was important was to learn about those reasons, what made them fail. And a lot of it came down to timing. Like many things in history, there's a lot of people that are ahead of their time, and then there's this perfect storm that enables something to really come to life. So you know, if, if you think about unpacking the sense of smell, you know, one of the most thoughtful ways to, to, look about, uh, to look at technology is through this lens of biomimicry. 
It's how does something work in nature? And then how can we replicate that? Because Mother Nature is a really efficient uh, system at perfecting uh, tools. And if you break down the sense of smell, it really comes down to, and, and you know, biologists are going to hate me for oversimplifying it to this level, but it comes down to really three parts. The ability to capture an odor, which is what our nose does, you know, everything from our nostrils all the way to our olfactory bulb. And that olfactory bulb is really the gateway to the brain because this, the odor itself is meaningless. It's just a signal, but it's the brain that processes it and tells us what that signal means, what those molecules that we've just breathed in, what do they represent? But there's also a third piece because the brain can't do its job unless it can tap into a library, a database that um, allows it to connect the signal, the pattern that it's looking at with a pattern that it's learned and be able to say, well, these molecules in this mix represent coffee. So that's kind of the basic premise of olfaction, and we digitize that. So from the time that doctors were diagnosing disease based on smell, and you talk about how, how companies have been trying to digitize it for a long time, uh, has there been an evolution that hasn't included AI? We know we're right there on the AI revolution right now, but was there something in between that was allowing certain easy to detect, I guess, by smell diseases to be detected? So I wouldn't say diseases, but I would say you're absolutely right. There was there was an earlier step to trying to digitize smell. Um, we interact with it every day, right? Every one of us has um, a CO2 monitor or um, a fire detector. Um, these are effectively chemical sensors, but they're locked into a single thing. So effectively, you can, if you think about those three parts that I mentioned, they have that capture mechanism, but they don't really have the brain because they're only trained to think about one thing. Is that thing present or absent? Present or absent? AI completely changed the paradigm and now allowed us to say, okay, we can actually build an entire library that powers or that is powered rather by the inputs of a single capture mechanism, a single sensor. That essentially was seven years of our life is building that platform. One piece was replicating the olfaction system, the nerves, the bulb, the capture mechanism. And the other piece was building the AI that you could then train to look for fingerprints in the sample that has been captured. And let me bring that to life for you. So seven years later, we were sitting with this technology. And if I were to give you this technology and say, you have the digital sense of smell in your hands, what would you do with it? Most people can immediately come out with half a dozen ideas, supply chain, security, uh, you know, drug detection, making appliances smarter, the list just is never ending. And we were very fortunate that many companies approached us to partner to build solutions that they um, were vested in, that they saw a great opportunity for. But we always had this very large vision. We said, we believe, we've just brought a, a, a fundamental technology to the market and we believe it can change the world. We just have to find the right way to deploy it. And then COVID hit. And like many other companies, it was, um, a blow, a blow to our efficiency, to our operations. Um, we were very lab reliant, so we lost access uh, to one of our core assets. So we sat back and said, well, what can we do with this you know, newly found bandwidth of ours? And we decided to build our own product just you know, to test the limits of our technology. And we chose to build in the time of COVID when suddenly everyone was talking about air and what they're breathing and the safety of being in a room we decided to build an air quality device, an air quality monitor, but not you know the kind of air quality monitor you can buy on Amazon. We're talking about the world's greatest air quality monitor. What allowed us to do that was particularly something we called the virus risk index. And we built that index, which based on a lot of scientific literature reviews that we did, we realized that viral respiratory illnesses like the flu, like COVID, they create a, a physiological response in the body. And when that, with that response, certain metabolic changes happen and they create a, a set of compounds, a set of chemicals that we exhale every time we breathe. We challenged ourselves and we said, well, if we can fingerprint that, if we can create a fingerprint for that physiological response, we can actually measure whether a room is risky or not risky. Because you probably remember during the time of COVID, everyone was talking about CO2 monitors. The logic being the higher the CO2, the more people in the room, so the riskier it is to be in that room. Yeah. But it doesn't actually tell you much, because if everyone in that room is negative, then it does, you know you, you you're not right. actually at risk. So, Kareem, 
first of all, if you're if you're just joining us on Cool Science Radio, we are having a conversation with Kareem Ali. He is the CEO of Nose, a Canadian company that is developing odor detection to help discover diseases. So, Kareem, you were just talking about you know the compounds that our body creates. Where does odor originate? Is it a is it our body's physiological response to a disease, or is it the disease itself that's creating these volatile organic compounds? Other otherwise known as the odor? Well, to a certain extent, they're one and the same. And that's the same question we asked ourselves is when we built the air quality monitor, we said, well, if we can measure it in a room, why can't we measure it from source, from the from a person's breath? And we really dug into that to really try to understand the biology. And if I take you back to high school biology, every time we breathe in, we're bringing, breathing in oxygen. We're, and then the oxygen goes to the bottom of your lungs at the point where your respiratory system meets your circulatory system. And that the, an exchange happens where the oxygen rich blood goes into your body and the, the depleted uh, air, which is now full, all full of CO2 leaves your body. But what happens is that oxygen rich blood go, travels around your entire body, touches every organ before it's exhaled. Um, so what we learned is when you exhale, aside from CO2, there are markers embedded in that exhalation that represent your health. And if you go a step deeper, if you can start to identify which markers tie to which particular diseases, you can create a screening mechanism that allows you to identify whether somebody has an indication of a particular disease. So to, to answer your question, the disease is creating that metabolic change, but that metabolic change is a physiological reaction. Um, which you then exhale. So you know, they, they, they're kind of symbiotic in, in a sense. Kareem, during COVID, they were using dogs to sniff out disease detection. Did you guys look at any of that or do any research as to how it is that dogs actually, I mean, we all know that dogs are great sniffers. Did you use any of that dog technology, if you will, in some of your development? Uh, we didn't use any dog technology beyond recognizing that a dog's olfaction system, a dog's sense of smell, is mammalian, right? So it's very much like ours. It's just much more powerful. So it's kind of the same concept is how do we digitize that? How do we harness it? And then knowing that certain diseases dogs have been proven that they can detect, those became the low-hanging fruit diseases for us to say, well, this is where we validate our technology because this there's already scientific proof that something out there can smell that particular disease. So Kareem knows has developed this product, the digitized smell sensor to detect disease, but some disease or, you know, maybe we should say disease and illness, I guess, uh, are easier than others. So for example, malaria, tuberculosis, breast cancer, and lung cancer, which is kind of crazy seeming type two diabetes that seems more explainable, I would say, high cholesterol and, and so on. But why do the markers or the triggers for these particular diseases seem to be easier to detect? What is What makes up the difference there? So I think you know, we have to be careful about the word easy. So maybe I'm making it sound deceivingly simple, uh, but it's actually incredibly complex. Um, because when you exhale, these markers are embedded in a ton of noise, right? CO2, humidity. Um, even if you think about your exhalation, it's capturing, if you, if you just had a cup of coffee, that's coming out, right? If you're chewing gum, that's coming out. So really being able to strip away all that noise and focus on the biomarkers is incredibly challenging. What makes one disease, quote unquote, easier to detect than another um, is really nothing more than the particular metabolic reaction that it generates. So it's not about the disease itself, it's just about the 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 physiology, um, what that disease, how that disease manifests in the human body, and whether that manifestation produces a basket of, of chemical reactions that can be used as a biomarker. Um, it just so happens that a lot of scientific study has taken place in areas where there's a lot to gain by having early, early diagnostics, early screening, like breast cancer, like lung cancer. So these have been either proven or disproven, which paved our way uh, for the early diseases for us to to pursue. Mm. So we all are very familiar and accepting of the fact that when we breathe into a breathalyzer, it can easily detect how many drinks we've had, for example. So that's something that, that we have lived with for a really long time. So I'm imagining that that sort of technology was developed in 
I don't know, is it, is it similarly or, or not? So um, I think in terms of functionality from a user's point of view, it's quite similar in how it works. Uh, it's a device that's usually handheld, you breathe into it, you have to hit a certain level of, you know, volume of breath for it to process. So I think in terms of that basic operation, it's very similar. In terms of the technology that powers it, it couldn't be more different. Um, traditional breathalyzers, alcohol breathalyzers, go back to what we were talking about earlier, which is um, what we can call, quote unquote, dumb sensors. Um, they're just designed to, to identify a single um, odor or a single um, analyte, in this case, um, alcohol, you know, the alcohol chain. Um, to detect a disease, very, very rarely is a disease represented by one single analyte. Usually it's a very complex basket of different analytes moving in different concentrations. Um, and it's that entire mix, when you look at it holistically, that represents a fingerprint of a disease. So it's actually impossible to do with a single sensor. You would need a, um, a digital nose or a multitude of sensors that uh, can work together. Uh, Kareem, tell us about how some of this started with the International Space Station and NASA and your collaboration or partnership with them. Yeah, so going back to the um, to the original story, we were driven by that intellectual curiosity and we saw that many, many people had failed. And we wrote, in fact, um, a little bit of a manifesto to, to create a blueprint for us to succeed. And one of the things that we realized is we the science is going to be incredibly hard and we needed to figure out how to de-risk the science. Um, so we started studying um, everyone out there who's worked on this in this space. We, we read their patents, we looked at their, their papers and their studies, and we realized NASA had been working for years on what you can consider a rudimentary electronic nose, a rudimentary digital nose. And they sent it to the ISS, the International Space Station, to monitor the air that the astronauts were breathing for, for toxins. And then it eventually came back to Earth, and it was it was deemed a success in terms of technology. Um, the reason I refer to it as rudimentary is because it was kind of the size of a shoebox, and it was only designed to track, um, I think, 10 different analytes, 10 different odors in the space station. So it had a lot of work to be done before it could be integrated into another type of device and really broadened in terms of uh, trained to detect whatever you wanted to detect. But what happened is, um, we approached NASA, our founder, in fact, approached NASA in, in, a, in a display of pure entrepreneurship, right? Uh, just uh, shamelessly went and knocked on one of you know, the, the largest US agency's door and said, I like what you're doing and I'd like to license it. And the first response we got is, well, you're a Canadian company and NASA as a matter of policy doesn't license to non-US companies, so thanks for coming. Uh, but he was persistent. And um, eventually we, we got to meet the inventor of the, the, the actual technology and shared our story with her. And she became one of our greatest champions inside NASA JPL because she believed in the mission that we laid out for her. Um, and a long story short is we became the first company in the history, I believe, of NASA, uh, the, the first non-US company to exclusively license patents uh, from the agency. And that was in 2014. And since then, we've kind of been developing the technology to miniaturize it, bring it down to a lower cost point, and allow it to, to be trained to detect any type of fingerprint so that we can enter into the disease space. So let's talk more about the odor, fa um, odor factor, if you will. You're, you're measuring molecules coming out of the breath that, as we all know, our sweat smells, our urine smells. Mm -hmm. Can Do those same molecules exude from our skin or from our urine as well and are there different ways are there better ways to test or different ways to test depending on what odor you're gathering katie that's a that's a brilliant question um yes in fact breath is the natural reflex for many people when they think about disease um, because of what we've you know all the science that that has emerged on the subject but if you actually go back to your example about dogs if you, if you think about it for a second, dogs that are detecting diseases on their owners, they're not smelling their breath because they're probably at you know, knee height smelling your body. So your body is actually releasing odors constantly. And some, of the, some diseases are better suited to monitor body odor um, than they are to breath. So it comes down to the, the disease and the nature of its manifestation in your body. 
And that's part of the study that we do before we embark on any um, on any indication in pursuit of a clinical study for a particular disease, is we really try to understand um, the metabolic reaction, the, um, the manifestation of that disease within the body to decide where best um, can we track um, for that thing or monitor for that fingerprint that we're looking for, that biomarker. Mm -hmm. So Kareem, we have a lot of diagnostic tools already. We have x-ray, we have MRI, we have blood tests, we have urine tests, we can test uh, white blood cell count. And where does this type of diagnostic tool fit into all of that? Also a great question. Um, you know, we have, a, we have a standard of care. Um, for the most part, we've evolved incredibly um, in the healthcare space. But I, there's an, there's a strong argument to be made that we focus very much on sick care. We focus on identifying people when they're sick and then treating them to the best of our abilities. Um, true healthcare would either be trying to avoid people getting sick or capturing those diseases at the earliest possible moment when they're the most treatable, when the cost of treatment is the lowest, when the, when the likelihood of a patient, a positive patient outcome is the highest. And that comes down to earlier screening, earlier diagnostics, and that in turn comes down to better accessibility and lower cost. And I think that's where we can fit in nicely into the standard of care. So instead of waiting six months to get a CT scan, um, if, you're, if you're symptomatic, um, to identify a potential mass, what if a lung cancer screening was a regular uh, part of the regular standard of care every time you see your GP, once you're past a certain age, depending on your family history, and it takes no more than, than breathing out in his or her office. Uh, to be able to get that first level screen that then initiates you know, a, a larger standard of care, a more invasive standard of care, CT scan, a biopsy, et cetera. Um, so our view is we can fundamentally change um, patient outcomes if we are able to enable a more accessible, a lower cost, and a reliable screening platform. Mm. Well, this is all very exciting. And what you were just talking about really leads into my final question, which has to do with things I've read about the way that our bodies send out markers or signals before there would ever be any other types of symptoms. And I'm thinking maybe along these lines that, that yes, odor perception really holds that key to some of these things that uh, may not have any other manifestation in our body, in our blood, in, you know, in our urine, in our scan. Um, is So going back to that question of, is odor one of the first markers? We believe, we believe so. Um, we believe it is, le odor lends itself to being a tool to capture the presence of a disease at the earliest possible time. Now, in an ideal world, people would be getting a CT scan every six months to mm -hmm. validate whether or not they have any particular disease, but that's not practical for many reasons. First of all, it's not, it's not a healthy practice to do. It's a very expensive uh, standard of care to introduce. Um, people. Uh, the cost is prohibitive. The waiting times are prohibitive. Um, it's just the, the uh, net result would be negative. Um, but smell eliminates a lot of the complexities of mass screening because it's so simple, it's so low cost, and it's so accessible that it would enable another, uh, what is effectively a quantum leap or a paradigm shift in the way we look at healthcare today. Mm, wonderful. Kareem Ali is the CEO of Nose. It's spelled N-O-Z-E. You can look it up and learn more about it. It's really exciting. And okay, you know, we've just got to know when can Katie and I go down to the local uh, drugstore and pick up one of these? At what point is it going to be on the market? Uh, great question. I, you know, that, I think, um, I think there's there's multiple stages to us going to market. The first is probably putting it in the hands of physicians, uh, mm -hmm. where they can use it at the um, uh, you know in in the clinical environment. But there is a future where the average person can have it uh, in their hands, whether a, a device or whether it's integrated into a device you already have. So I'll I'll leave that to your imagination about how that future could look. <laughs> uh, but it's certainly a few years away.
Okay, wonderful. Kareem, thank you so much for joining us on Cool Science Radio. Really interesting. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Welcome back to Cool Science Radio. I'm Lynn Ware Peak. And I'm Katie Mullally. Well, you can tell by the number of electric vehicles prowling the streets of Park City that clean energy technologies have gone mainstream. But what lies beneath the attractiveness of Tesla's zero to 60 in the blink of an eye? From EVs to wind turbines and electricity networks, the green energy transition is promising. But we also need to educate ourselves about the associated costs. Our guest is Reuters journalist Ernest Scheider. He has written extensively about the green energy transition. And he now joins us to discuss his newly released book, The War Below, Lithium, Copper, and the Global Battle to Power Our Lives. Ernest Scheider, welcome to Cool Science Radio. It's great to be with you, Lynn and Katie. First of all, there's so much to unpack in this book that I feel like we have to hurry through this interview. But um, energy security, you say, you know, it used to be about crude oil and natural gas. And now it's also about lithium, copper and other metals used in especially EVs, but in lots of other things that we use daily, like phones. So we talk about critical minerals. What is critical about critical minerals? First off, great to great to be with you. It, it really depends, of course, on your perspective. You know, the U.S. government doesn't consider copper a critical mineral, but copper is in everything that's electronic because it forms wiring. Um, it has many, many other uses. Um, so critical really is in the eye of the beholder here. And what I wanted to do with the book was to bring to the audiences the fact that for so long we have been focused, as you say, on petroleum-based products, crude oil, natural gas as sort of the building blocks of our economy. And now as our economy transitions to one that's based on a lot of these metals and minerals, those become critical really to our economic success. So in that regard, they're extremely important for all of the gadgets and gizmos that are underpinning our societies. It's about much more than just Teslas. It's about much more than um, any other type of transportation out there. It's about cell phones. It's about anything that's powered with a battery. Um, and so that's what makes these minerals critical because we can't have a future with all these electronic gadgets without more of these metals and minerals. When the city of Park City started with their fleet of electric buses and and this was, I don't know, maybe coming up on 10 years ago, and the sustainability department at the city was trying to come up with how to equate so that you could look at the real trade-off between a gas-powered bus and, and an electric bus, and they put it into terms that was all about miles per gallon. And it came out that an electric bus was still ahead. But we don't know what all went into that equation and maybe that's what you can help us look at now take something like an electric bus you know when you did your research for the book how did you get there sure so i, I would say first off that 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 um that calculation that you laid out there it's really really hard to get a, a specific answer on that unless you know exactly where the lithium and the copper and the cobalt and the nickel comes from that was go into that bus um, or any electronic device for that matter. And therein lies the rub really for many folks in the United States and in Western nations that want to go green, that want to have um, these clean energy devices. You know, where do the building blocks of these devices come from? You can say that yes, the power that was going into um, the power lines that goes to charge the battery for the bus, I mean, that's easily quantifiable. Um, but what about the lithium? I mean, was it extracted in, in Northern Chile, which is one of the biggest lithium producing regions in the world? Was that lithium then processed there, then shipped to the coast, then shipped across the Pacific Ocean? then turn into a cathode someplace in Asia, then put into a battery pack, maybe in another part of Asia, then shipped to uh, a, um, a bus manufacturing facility, maybe in Asia, maybe in North America, before it's then shipped to Utah. I mean, yeah, I think you can sort of start to see right there, just that long uh, chain um, certainly increases greenhouse gas emissions from transportation, um, but then also opens up that entire supply chain to disruptions, whether that's from weather, or sort of un other um, unforeseen events. Um, and so the question becomes that if we want to go green, how do we reduce the entire chain there? You know, Volkswagen has this great uh, marketing campaign for many of its EVs that it says it's a zero emission vehicle when you buy it at the lot. And that's true, 
But what about the copper that goes into that car? You know, what about the cobalt? Did it come out of the Congo where seven-year-olds have uh, been mining uh, extremely unfortunately and horrendously uh, cobalt that goes out of the ground there? Um, and so what I really wanted to bring with the book, what I wanted to bring to the readers with the book um, was a sense of the choices that we face. You know, if we really want a clean energy transition, if we feel that a lot of these electronic gadgets are extremely important for our lives and power our lives, and I think they do, um, then we have to be having a discussion about where, how, and why we get these building blocks. And so I look at a lot of proposed projects in the United States on purpose because of that long supply chain I just laid out to you. I say, okay, well, are there places in the United States where we should be producing lithium that eventually will make it into the bus in, in Park City? Are there places we can be extracting copper? And the answers aren't that black and white. There's a lot of tough choices here. Um, and the what I really wanted to bring to folks is just say, we have to be grappling with that choice because this really is a book about choice. If you're just joining us on Cool Science Radio, our guest is Ernest Scheider. He is the author of The War Below, Lithium, Copper, and the Global Battle to Power Our Lives. Well, Ernest, one of the things I found so fascinating about your book was the human component, the human toll that this mining and extraction is taking on, you know, just America. I can't even imagine mm. what's happening in other countries. But what I think is really important about your book is it's so easy for people to say, oh, I've got my zero emissions Volkswagen without any sort of consideration of the upstream effects. There were, you know, many, many emissions that went into making this car. I think everyone should read this book, especially if you're considering buying an electric vehicle. How do we educate people about the fact that there was a whole entire lifespan before you buy your phone or your car that really had an environmental impact? I think increasingly, Katie, um, the average consumer is going to have to demand this information for manufacturers. You know, we're so used to, I think, a great analog is you go into a, a car dealership lot today if you buy an internal combustion engine, and what's one of the main metrics you look at? Miles per gallon. Um, and that helps you decide whether or not you buy this vehicle. Um, I think increasingly consumers are going to have to be asking for um, not only, you know, how far can I go on a single charge, you know, three, 400 kilometers with this battery, but where do the metals come from? And I think you're starting to see some manufacturers recognize that those questions increasingly are going to be at the forefront of consumers' minds. So companies like Volkswagen are increasingly looking at their supply chains and saying, is the lithium being produced ethically? You know, are the people that are producing it being paid a living wage? You know, is the production site respectful of local water sources and aquifers? You know, um, how uh, is the production and processing facilities powered? Is it powered by coal? Is it powered by solar? All of these things affect the entire supply chain. And the more and more that consumers ask for it, the more that it's going to be out there. But that'll affect supply chains that will take time. In your book, there's a quote by Bill McKibben, the environmental author, and he says, blowing up a mountain isn't green. And I think that's such an important thing to consider because again, we see these, you know, these wind turbines and solar panels and EV cars, and all of a sudden it's like, oh, I'm an environmentalist. It's like, no, it's very, very far from that. But in addition to those big products that we see, there are these minerals in everything we use. I remember years ago doing some research on LED lights when they first mm. came out. And everyone's like, oh, they're going to save you all this energy. But it's like we you couldn't find out any information about how they were made because it was proprietary. So where else are these minerals showing up that maybe we aren't even considering that do have a global impact? So the um, I have a great chapter, uh, a chapter that I had a lot of fun writing in the book about leaf blowers, um, which might sound really innocuous and basic, but I picked that home appliance on purpose uh, to really broaden it out for the reader beyond electric vehicles. Um, everything in our lives is going um, electric now. And so, you know, a few years ago, I got a house and I decided to go all in on the electric um, Ryobi set that you can buy at Home Depot. So I got an electric lawnmower, I got an electric weed whacker, and yes, an electric leaf blower. But as I was writing this book, it took me down a rabbit hole. I said, okay, well, where do the minerals in the battery for this leaf blower come from. And I was able to follow sort of the provenance of the battery itself and discover that it um, was made uh, in uh, Malaysia, but I wasn't actually able to find out where the lithium came from, the copper came from, the nickel came from, the cobalt came from. Um, and I wasn't able to find out if they were produced in the United States or elsewhere, or if the uh, copper was produced under 
um, less than optimal conditions um, in Peru, um, or if the lithium came out of Chile. Um, and so I wasn't able to find any of that. And, it, and I trust me, I, I dug, <laughs> pun intended, and, and I couldn't find it out. And so that's just the lowly leaf blower here. Now magnify that across the millions and millions and millions of electronic products that are increasingly um, underpinning our everyday lives. And you start to see um, that it's just not clear, like to your, to your question, like it's just not clear where a lot of these are sourced from. Um, there are supplies all over the world of a lot of these metals and minerals. I mean, certainly, obviously, some places have more than others, but we're not having a broader discussion about what are the choices that we're willing to make. Are we willing to mine in certain places and not in others? And especially in the United States, we're not having that discussion point right now. So what is that going to lead to if we just keep our heads in the sand? That's going to lead to my little leaf blower story being magnified across millions of devices and people not really knowing where the building blocks come from for their everyday lives. Ernie, I almost broke my back uh, shoveling last year because it was a huge winter of uh, snow. And we bought an electric snowblower this year. And I was so excited about it because it, <laughs> it meant less backbreaking work. So, you know, the ultimate question is, did you abandon your electric uh, leaf, your battery powered leaf blower? Uh, no, I, I, I still do have it. So um, it, it, it does a really good job. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but I continue my quest to find out where the metals come from. And so it will be ongoing. Right, right. So let's look at something like lithium, because you've mentioned that a couple of times. And Chile and Australia, as you said, were the world's largest producers of that. Yeah. And we might say to ourselves, well, you know, probably human costs and environmental costs of the way they mine in Australia is going to be better probably better than chile but maybe chile is you know they're kind of stepping up in the world too but the bottom line is they both rely on china to process much of the lithium into yep. a form that becomes usable so can can you focus in on on lithium the cost of mining lithium for example yeah, so it's not completely analogous to, to crude oil, but I think most of your listeners probably are familiar with, with an oil refinery and it takes petroleum-based products and you make gasoline or um, diesel um, or a host of other products. You know, it's it's sort of roughly analogous what uh, lithium refining will do. Um, and most of those processing plants are in China. So you can think of a lot of the lithium that comes out of the ground in Northern Chile or Western Australia. It is shipped now predominantly to China for processing into, um, this is going to be a bit nerdy, so bear with me, either lithium hydroxide or lithium carbonate, which depending on what type of battery you're making and what kind of manufacturer you are, you prefer for various reasons. And so that's put into a cathode, and most cathode facilities are in, in Asia, predominantly in China, um, so it makes sense to have the processing of the lithium there. Um, so it's going to have to take an expansion of that supply chain outside of Eastern Asia in order um, for the lithium refining to sort of grow with it. It's very much a chicken or egg thing. Um, and so what the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act aims to do is to help spur a lot of that, what's called sort of midstream processing of lithium in the United States. You see companies like Albemarle and Piedmont Lithium um, and even Tesla um, work uh, currently uh, have uh, lithium projects here in the United States that are on the drawing board for them. Um, and so the more that that happens, then you can spur a more um, domestic battery production facility, uh, production supply chain. Um, but um, that's sort of the broad overview. But but China has spent the past 20, 30, 40 years really cornering the market on a lot of this um, metals refining. And so for lithium, um, as well as for a whole host of other metals, they've really realized this is the Achilles heel. You know, if you can control the refining into the highly specialized form of lithium that a lot of manufacturers really crave, then you can control the entire market. And they've used that to their advantage. I looked up because as, as we drive our EVs down to the Salt Lake Valley from Park City, for example, we look across the valley at Kennecott Copper Mine. Yep. And I just I just wanted to look it up. Um, it's my understanding Kennecott is now owned by Rio Tinto, but, it, yep. but it's still called Kennecott. One of the things that they say, actually, it's right on their homepage. It says reducing our carbon footprint. And they're talking about how they're going to uh, become carbon neutral. It's their goal to become carbon neutral by 2050. And all of these other measures they're trying to take to become better miners or a better mining operation. And so 
I mean, is the answer, you know, bringing the mining here? No one likes to look at a mine. No one thinks when they're driving their EV down right. to Salt Lake, they don't look across <laughs> and say, thank goodness that mine is there. But <laughs> do we need to? Well, these, these are the tough choices, right? I mean, these are the choices that I, I'm bringing to the audience um, with the book, and it's written for a very general audience um, because of these very issues. You know, I was thinking of Salt Lake, especially when I was writing parts of the book, because Kennecott has been there for more than 100 years. It's the deepest man-made hole in the world, which is sort of mind-boggling when you think about it, and it's still got many, many more years to go, but and it ethically and so it ethically sources copper and gold for uh, many parts of the global manufacturing supply chain. You know, there's no two ways about it, Lynn. You're absolutely right. It's sort of annoying to live next to a giant hole in the ground where they use dynamite to blast up and remove rock. So these are sort of the, the tough choices. Um, Tiffany and Company is a customer of that mine. And, and you know, when you buy a ring from Tiffany, your engagement ring or otherwise, um, you know, some of the metal could come out of Utah. Um, and, and so that's a longstanding relationship there. The state um, does have also large lithium supplies. You mentioned the Great Salt Lake, but but officials um, in the state capitol have recently um, updated some of the state regulations that sort of are essentially sort of crimping the production there. It's in order to preserve the water levels in the Great Salt Lake. So, so I, you know, I would say that that's probably a choice that state officials are saying, you know, we support the energy transition, but perhaps... The Great Salt Lake is a bridge too far, but Kennecott is something that they could support. So in a way, Utah is sort of grappling with these questions better, perhaps, than other parts of the United States right now, because they're saying yes to some and no to others. Um, and I think the more that folks think about these tough choices, the more we'll actually start to get to concrete um, answers for them, because we can't just show up to an Apple store and expect an iPhone to be there unless we think through sort of where did the copper and the cobalt and the rare earths and the other critical minerals come from in order to build that. I mean, I think the coronavirus pandemic taught us many things. One especially was sort of the problems of really, really long supply chains that relying on other places across the world for products that form our everyday lives. Well, Ernie, I think it's important for us to have these mines here in the U.S. because we actually see the impact yeah. of what they do to the local economies. I mean, it's easy to ignore an oil field in Nigeria because that has nothing to do with us. And so yeah. we can fill our cars and drive away. But what I found astounding, one of the many things I've found in your book is the number of mines that are owned by foreign companies. Mm -hmm. That seems like that comes with a really, really big risk, especially if something, the mine closes, they just walk away. Why is the U.S. allowing so much foreign ownership? We could talk all day about that. <laughs> um, uh, there, there, there. So there are several safeguards in place to um, to stop certain companies, excuse me, certain countries from buying certain companies in the United States. It's just there's this sort of long um, acronym known as CFIUS, um, and and so that 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 does sort of have some safeguards in place. But but beyond that, the short answer is you know the free enterprise economy, people can. Most people can come in and if they want to buy an asset and if they have the money and they pass the regulatory muster, they end up being able to purchase it. Um, and that can bring up a whole host of issues, sort of where do you export the metals after you take it out of the ground? Do you take them out of the United States um, or do you keep them domestically? Um, do you hire mostly local talent or do you import your talent? Um, do you hire um, local contractors? Um, do you hire local vendors? Everything from lumber to sandwiches for your staff. Um, so all of these things matter. Um, you know, a great example is um, in Arizona, uh, in chapter two of the book, I dive into the complexities about the Resolution, Resolution Copper Project, which is about an hour east of Phoenix. And um, this is a mine that's been in regulatory review for more than a decade strongly opposed by Native American groups in the area because the mine would destroy in time a, a site that's religiously important to many Native Americans. Um, and the mine is uh, being developed or wants to be developed by Rio Tinto and BHP, which are two uh, Anglo-Australian mining companies. The question becomes here sort of what matters more you know, should we respect these indigenous rights um, or should we produce the copper for the green energy transition? And then if, to your point, Katie, if the copper is produced, would it just leave the United States and go to China anyhow? So as part of the reporting for the book and my work at Reuters, you know, I got time with the CEO of Rio Tinto and I put that question to him directly. I said, where is this copper going to go if you eventually get this green light? And he did commit to me, uh, and it's on the record in the book, that that copper is going to stay in the United States. Um, now, there's some structural questions there. You know, Lynn was asking about lithium refineries earlier. 
um, to refine copper, you need smelters. Um, and you, don't, you think people don't want a hole in the ground. They definitely don't want a smelter next door. Um, and we only have, I think, three or four smelters for copper in the United States right now. So if you bring on one of these biggest mines in the world, you're going to have to be thinking about maybe building another smelter. Um, and so does that mean if there's not a smelter that that foreign company that owns that big mine in Arizona then exports that copper elsewhere? So there's a lot of moving parts here to this question, um, and it's there's no easy answers. Well, let's get back to the whole idea of walking into the Apple store to buy yet another new iPhone. At what point, this might be more of a philosophical question, at what point do you think we will actually sit back as consumers and go, hey, wait a minute, maybe I don't need eight devices. Maybe I don't need to buy everything that's plugged in. Maybe I don't need to spend eight, not that I do this, but eight hours a day playing video games. It's like <laughs> we are... We're driving this demand, and it seems like so much of it is truly unnecessary. But will we ever see that as, you know, first world humans? Well, I mean, I, I hope so. I hope that the book serves as um, a mirror, really, around the complexities of these issues. And, and um, you know, we have to be having the discussions. You know, me, me and my lowly iPhone 12, I think, are out of date by now. <laughs> we, we use them every day. You know, we're, we're talking electronically right now, of course. And... So it just requires, I think, um, an appreciation for the many, many moving parts that go into um, our everyday lives. I do think, back to the pandemic, is that the era, the pandemic showed us all that the era of just sort of blindly thinking that things just show up, um, I think that's over. And I hope that that realization um, continues. You know, I, I remember masks, for instance. We were all shocked in early 2020 that, what do you mean, there are no masks made in the United States? I was like, well, no, it was considered a low value item that really had no sort of high margins. So why would you produce it in the United States? Um, so it's, it's you know, when you sort of extrapolate that into the electronic sphere, it's like, okay, well, you know, should we be producing um, metals and minerals in the United States? You know, these are, these are the tough questions. Um, I will say, Katie and Lynn, um, mining can be extremely lucrative. You can make a lot more money mining metals out of the ground that go into an electric vehicle than you can actually making the electric vehicle itself. And that's due to a host of factors, um, one of which is that the law that's governed mining in the United States since 1872, since the 19th century, means that mining companies don't have to pay royalties on the metals that they take out of the ground in much of the Western United States. So that just is extremely profitable. They're not paying share, they're not paying the taxpayer, me and you and everyone else um, to do this. So it's just a huge boon for them. Ernie, before we let you go, I wanted to ask you about the human cost. You know, you you talked a little bit about the the proposed mine in Arizona, and it's not exactly human cost, but it kind of is. L let's mm. go to um, I think it's a Congo and the cobalt mining and the opportunity to maybe evolve away from using so much cobalt. It's my understanding. Um, because the way it's mined is is there is a huge human cost and it's heartbreaking. Yeah, so it it completely agree, Lynn. It's 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 really extremely heartbreaking. And and the quick encapsulation here: the Democratic Republic of the Congo has some of the world's largest cobalt and copper reserves, and there's large companies that try to mine that cobalt out of the ground, um, and they do have concessions from the government to do so. Most of the companies do tend to be Chinese owned or Chinese linked. Um, but the people that live there recognize also that cobalt has a value. And so they will basically dig under their houses, dig under their land, they'll break onto mine sites at night and dig and continue to dig. And these tend to be adults, but also children will come with them. Um, and there tends to be a very healthy middle market for that rock. So you're literally digging rock out of the ground, putting it into a basket and then selling it to somebody who might give you a dollar or two for a day's work. And this is extremely backbreaking. Um, children can be maimed or killed. Um, and cobalt, when it's ground up, it can um, turn into a dust that gets into your lungs and really affects the internal workings of, of your airways. Um, it's just atrocious conditions. Um, nobody wants to be working in these, and nobody wants a kid especially to be working in these conditions. But yet that cobalt filters through the global supply chain and can end up despite the best efforts of manufacturers, it can end up in many of the electronic devices that that you and I own. Um, so the question is, you know, how do we reduce our cobalt usage? I mean, cobalt has a, a huge positive effects on batteries. Um, it can, depending on how you design the chemistry of a battery, um, be used to reduce 
what's called thermal runaway. Again, not to get too nerdy on you, but but you might have seen sort of Teslas just spontaneously erupting. Part of that is due to thermal runaway. It's it's sort of a a known but very minor and um, factor in electric the electric vehicle industry. Um, so if you have more uh, cobalt in there, you can reduce that. Um, Elon Musk has been very open about the fact that he wants to have less cobalt and batteries, primarily due to this child labor issue. Um, and so there are ways to sort of um, engineer a battery to uh, use less cobalt. But um, even though you might be able to engineer the battery to use less cobalt, just think of the sheer number globally of batteries that are going to be built. So you can see that even though the volume per battery might decrease, the sheer volume needed will increase globally. And so therein lies sort of the rub. It's like we can say this is a problem. We can identify it as an issue that we want to change. But if the sheer volume of demand is going to increase, that cobalt is going to have to come from somewhere. I love to point folks to a cobalt project in northern Idaho that was actually recently mothballed because China has been trying to flood the global market and sort of affect this and other projects, economically speaking. Um, that project had already been running into some permitting issues because people in northern Idaho did not want a cobalt mine. And so I'm not necessarily drawing a stark contrast between seven-year-old in the Congo or cobalt mine in northern Idaho. But I really hope folks come away with a reading of the war below with sort of the tough choices out there. You know, if we don't want more cobalt mining in our country under the really high ESG standards that are imposed by Washington and various states, are we comfortable with having miners in parts of Africa extract this metal out of the ground? Um, I hope folks really be thinking through that here. And, and as you say, Lynn, I mean, this is about the humans behind for and against these mines. Um, and I really get into what makes them tick and had the honor really of, of hearing from folks on all sides here because it's not my job to say should this mine be built or not be built it's my job to sort of bring to the reader the complexities of these issues and encourage them to think through it for her or himself well the book is called the war below lithium copper and the global battle to power our lives our guest is ernest scheider um, I'm so glad we got a couple copies because it's it's a book to read cover to cover. So thank you so much for joining us on Cool Science Radio. Great to be with you both. Again, Ernest Scheider in his book, The War Below, Lithium, Copper, and the Global Battle to Power Our Lives. Fascinating book. His last name is spelled S-C-H-E-Y-D-E-R. We'll have that up in our post this afternoon. You can find all of our archive shows at kpcw.org under the Shows tab and Cool Science Radio. Thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to KPCW Park City.